LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over 100 years ago. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar. Uh, last night, we had a really, really wonderful RP Live with our guest, Clara Matei, uh, discussing her book, The Capital Order. Um, we will be producing that uh, RP Live for replay. It was a webinar um, in the near future, so look forward to seeing that. Um, the other thing is that we'll be having a book club with Clara Matei's The Capital Order, we're targeting the middle of May. Um, again, last night was fantastic. She stayed on for a very long time answering lots of questions from the audience. And uh, I really feel like it was a fantastic experience. So if you were able to attend, by all means, let us know in the comments your thoughts on the uh, RP Live. Today's conversation, though, is going to be about the walls closing in. And it's like more so the feeling of the walls closing in, um, you know, pretty much everywhere you look, there is a hyperbolic hair on fire assessment of what's going on in the world. And it's led by people in many ways, shape or form, uh, many ways that don't understand the issues entirely. And, um, it, it, it can, it can be, it can really bring you down, it can really bring you down. I was uh, talking with a friend this morning about uh, the event last night and what it meant for labor and what it meant for uh, society as a whole in the political landscape. And in the end, it just was very obvious that we are trapped by our peers as the establishment uses every known strategy to keep us completely distracted and frantic and uh <clears throat> unable to tell right from wrong unable to discern truth from fiction and uh we're we're trapped by it i mean we're really trapped by it so this is a big part of the walls closing in is there's the noise from all the false narratives that we've got to fend off and then there's the fear that we have as we try to balance out what we know and what we're seeing and the way it's being reported in the mainstream and worse, the way it's being reported by the alt media, um, who, you know, for all the hatred I have for the mainstream media, which is tremendous. I mean, I hate them for lying to us, for giving us these fake ideas and, and giving us a false narrative that, uh, really doesn't tell the true story at all. It creates so much pain and suffering because enough people believe that they're saying good news. That's not really good news, bad news. It's not really bad news, false news, fake news, half news, et cetera. But we've got what, what some are calling a poly crisis where you've got many crises hitting at one time. And because there's so many crises hitting at one time, it's hard to know what's going to happen. It really is. Um, there are some things that we know inherently are true that we can kind of put a, put a stake in the ground and say, 
hey, look, if I hold tight here, I at least have this bit of truth. Um, you know, we've got Donald Trump right now um, being uh, pulled into uh, what I consider to be a bit of a circus. Um, you know, right on the heels of it, uh, news reports come out that Stormy Daniels suddenly has to pay Donald Trump's legal fees because she tried to counter sue on something about defamation and they threw it out. So, you know, we've got that to distract us and that will be loud. That'll be on a 24 seven blast, stealing oxygen, taking away our attention free. Uh, what do you want to call it? Yeah, you're right, Teresa. Um, but free, um, just, just free publicity for Donald Trump, just like they did last go around. And then we've got the growing economic crisis around the world. As you watch the BRICS and other Asian countries coming together, uh, China, uh, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, even, uh, Japan has now even worked out to be able to purchase Russian oil. Um, you've got places like Honduras that have pushed away Taiwan and embraced China. Um, so you see this multipolar world beginning to, to really take form. We don't know what the impact of it is because, see, unfortunately, the going narrative about the, the petrodollar and world reserve currency and stuff like that really, really wreak havoc. I mean, just complete havoc on people's minds because there's groups out there that focus on this stuff, not fully understanding that we have what we call state money. In other words, the government, our government creates it. Um, so what we might end up having to do <clears throat> is we may end up having to produce goods and services at home. Um, we may have to work out different replacement strategies for products. We may have to start drilling again because we don't have a coherent uh, renewable policy in this country. Um, we saw a pushback, ironically, from Biden's CHIPS Act, which basically made Europe say, hey, wait a minute, you're protecting your own chip makers. What happened to us? Where's What's in it for us? So you've got Europe, the EU, pushing back now as well, saying, hey, wait a minute, what, what's in it for us? What, what is good about being paired up with the United States? And so each of these things are happening at the same time while simultaneously dealing with a large community of people that still believe in elections, still believe that what's happening in the political space is real, it's not fake. They still believe in, you know, all kinds of stuff. So we're stuck. We're in this place where how do you dig out with so many polycrises that all impact one another, or at least appear to impact one another, when so few understand MMT or understand the way money works? And worse, even people who we spent considerable time explaining it to don't get it right the folks from M medicare for all the march for medicare for all were on with katie halper and they did not in any way shape or form talk about how we would pay for it using public money they reverted to form and talked about how they would need to raise taxes to pay for things i literally sat on two panels with this anna malino and stuff, explaining it to her. Literally, we had people like Fadl Kaboob explain it directly to her. First chance she gets in front of a camera, we're going to raise taxes to pay for it. So we don't have people that understand the economy. 
we've got a bunch of politicians that don't understand the economy, or if they do, they're purposely playing dumb um, so that they can do the stupid shit that they're doing. <clears throat> and in the end, this can feel like, this can feel hopeless. Um, because ultimately, in the end, I mean, we really need to know and understand class. We need to understand our own class interests, and we need to understand that the people that we're pointing to and looking to for guidance and looking to for uh, uh, support and effort don't share that same viewpoint, don't share that same understanding. We're expecting things from a Congress that is bought and paid for through a capitalist regime, through a uh, you know belief in capitalist markets, finance, all the above. And we're left expecting them to do something for us that fundamentally violates every tenet of capitalism, you know, every tenet of the free market. Like I said, when Joe Biden issued the bill for the CHIPS Act, he was by extension protecting and building microchips, you know, tr transistors, all kinds of different uh, semiconductors and stuff like that here in the United States. And for groups outside this, they saw that as protectionism, okay? And protectionism is antithetical to the free market, which is thus antithetical to the whole framework that our nation tends to put out there. We have failed to do the things we needed to do for so long. And now we've got to dig out of the hole that we're in, our country is in, that our infrastructure is in. We've got to do all these things. We've got to deal with a climate crisis that no one's actually taking seriously. We've got to deal with wars that are going on all over the world. We got to deal with a oil crisis now as the Saudi Arabian government and OPEC have decided to cut oil production, which we should be able to celebrate, right? Should be able to celebrate that. They're going to cut it by 1 uh, million barrels a day. But guess what? By them cutting it, it's going to drive inflationary pressures up once again. So in my inbox, I'm getting all kinds of blogs from these right-wing fear porn people saying that the end of the U.S. dollar hegemony is here. Okay, well, that, that's supposed to be a good thing, right? The, the reason the U.S. has dollar hegemony, the reason why it matters is because we use the payment system as a weapon against countries that don't tow the U.S. line. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. And we use it to force them into arrangements that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get into if we didn't have that kind of control over the payment system. Um, but in the end, it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm hoping, what, what am I hoping for? Am I hoping that Joe Biden uh, figures out what's going on and is able to work with our monetary system to keep things going as they are? This is a real challenge, right? It's like, who wants their family to suffer? Who wants people to go through even more pain as, as things go wrong? So where do you fall? Well, you can clearly see most people are not ready for any kind of revolution. You can see most people can't be bothered to learn the stuff so that they can kind of clear the noise out. You can see that a huge batch of our friends are more than happy to create as much noise as they can which ultimately blocks out the truth. We're trapped. The walls are closing in and we don't have a friend. We don't have a friend in high places. We don't have anything 
but each other. And we don't get along. No one gets along. And the few that do get along don't understand the system. The ones that do understand the system, you got people over here in bourgeois city that are, are going to be fine, that are looking for jobs in the uh, upper tiers of government and the upper tiers of industry. And then you got the rest of us schmucks down here at the bottom that are desperate, that are worried about keeping our homes, worried about getting our health care taken care of, worried about everything because our lives are in severe precarity. We're so divided up. Our class interests are so much a schism right now that without educating people, without building up popular support for the truth, we don't stand a chance. And again, there is so much information that we don't know. So many ways of looking through uh, the facts and stuff and coming up with a, an analysis. And yet the analysis that we're left with typically is, oh my God, the U.S. dollar, the end of the dollar. What does that even mean? What does it even mean to have the quote-unquote end of the dollar? I mean, the end of dollar hegemony? Again, we all talk about wanting to end the empire, to stop the empire. But that has a lot of fallout, doesn't it? It's not the rich that are going to suffer. They're going to still live in their nice houses. They're going to still drive their nice cars. They're still going to eat their sherbet out of their twin sub Zs. They're still going to have everything that they want and need without any problem whatsoever. No, the fallout, my friends, is going to come and it's going to sweep those of us at the bottom away. That's the real story. That's always a story. The poor always left carrying the bags for the rich, whether it be proverbially or whether it be in reality. We are left at the end of the rope. We're the ones that when push comes to shove, when they're, the lifeboats are filling up, we're still trapped under deck with the gates locked. We're the ones that are always used as cannon fodder. We're the ones they send to the front line. We're the ones that they send to charge through the brigade. We're the ones that they send out into minefields. And we're the ones that get mowed down. We're the ones that they set up for failure in schools and build their, uh, you know, public school to private prison pipeline. You know, we're, we're in a position where we're the ones that are always paying the heaviest price. We're all the fuck-ups that go on around us. And we're, we're trained mentally to believe we deserve it. We're trained mentally to believe that there's nothing that could be done, that we're, we're powerless. And, you know, there's a part of me that says, you know, maybe accepting our powerlessness is, is a good thing, right? Maybe accepting our powerlessness in this framework is a good thing because we stop thinking that somehow or another if our hair is on fire and we create more noise that, suddenly it will make things better. But in reality, the government is serving who it's intended to serve, and that's capital. It's not serving you and I. So if it's not serving us and it's serving them, what do we do? How do we move forward? How do we as people survive these polycrises? especially when we don't even know what the real problem is because we're too busy listening to full cups and people that are part of the disinformation uh, industrial complex, if you will. You know, I, I thought about it last night and in Clara's book, The Capital Order, she talks about two different 
groups in the latter part of the book. She talks about Winston Churchill and a parliamentarian system. And she talks about Benito Mussolini and the black shirts and the Italians and the austerity. And when you look across two totally separate seeming groups, two totally different kinds of government, in the end, somewhere up here, they meet in the middle at the top and austerity becomes the way of the land. Because in the end, all these different groups protect the top earners, protect the rich, protect the property owners, protect the, um, protect the folks that need the least protection. And in a way, they should need the most protection because they're such a small group of people. And you would think that these contradictions, that this attack, if you will, on us little guys, you would think that that would be enough to make people stop saying that it's our hard-earned tax dollars and start realizing that if you can send $2 billion to Ukraine overnight without thinking about it, without doing a fundraiser drive to come up with the funds uh, to, uh, you know, send $2 billion over there, okay? I mean, think about what $2 billion is. It's it's very small amount of money. I mean, you couldn't buy half of the Washington football team commanders for that. I think they're going to sell for $6 billion. So $2 billion isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. But yet we can't even get health care. We can't get Medicare for all. We can't get our student debts wiped out. We can't get any of this stuff. It's, it's, it's one of those things where the, we're, we're like, we're in the rapids, we're holding on to a tree after a big flood. And we look and we see these mountains off to the side and we see some white water and some rocks. And little do we know that over that is this cliff and we're going to fall down to a rocky, uh, a rocky, you know, death. We're, we're at a point where the walls really are closing in and time is growing short, but I can't predict when things are going to go wrong, where things are going to go wrong, how they're going to go wrong. What I do know is this, the economics, if we take a step back and we ground ourselves in basics of fiat currency and understand the way that our government works and operates, okay, if we just fundamentally understand the government is the creator of the dollar, the government literally created a charter to get the Fed into existence. It then in turn outsourced, if you will, the money creation from the treasury to the Federal Reserve to clear payments. It became the nation's central bank in 1913. But there's so many more spicy takes that just wear you out, make you want to fall to the ground and make your arms go limp and just say, Jesus, here come the libertarians again. They're going to say it again. They're going to do it again. Here comes the bullshit again. And I just, I, I feel like the most basic thing is just understanding how fiat currency works. Just understand how it works. Does it take all the gibberish, the trash brings to you? Okay. And just remember the thing that keeps the dollar's value is that the government taxes in it. 
you cannot pay your taxes in anything other than U.S. dollars. So if you stop there and forget everything else that's going around, you know that the government creates money. It doesn't need to find money. It can't find money. It never, under any circumstances, no matter how good the times are and no matter how bad the times are, the government never looks for money. It has no need to look for money. It couldn't look for money. It literally creates money every single time it spends, period. No matter how high it jacks your taxes up, no matter how low it drops your taxes, the government always spends new money into existence when it spends it. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, reuses dollars. And the federal government spends money into existence, if it just kept spending money into existence and did not do something to take money out of existence, you would just have mountains of money laying everywhere. Mountains of digital money, mountains of paper money, mountains of coins, whatever. But the truth is, is that we know that the reason why the government taxes is not a funding operation. It is an operation intended to pull money out of the economy, to develop and create a coercive force, a coercive force that you need to pay your taxes. You need to pay your taxes, but you don't pay taxes to fund programs. Okay. This right here, if we could just get folks to get this part, when you see all the other stuff going on, you see all the other gibberish, it would stop it dead in its tracks. They sell bonds after they spend. They, where'd the money come from for them to spend without having the money from bonds? See, bonds don't fund government spend. Bonds are a way of ensuring that people that have money collateralize that by buying bonds and earn a nominal interest. If we got rid of them, which we could, People would lose their minds, okay? People would lose their minds because bonds are a safe bet usually, okay? And so because the government always pays its bills, it's constitutionally obligated to pay its bills, the bonds always have interest payments made to them, okay? I mean, it's really super important to understand that. And so... I hear people oftentimes talk about we should tax corporations because they need to pay their fair share and that's how we'll finance public education or that's how we'll finance uh, whatever. But taxes do not fund spending. And putting a tax on a corporation does what? What, what, what is a corporation? Forget everything else. What is a corporation's primary purpose for existing? It is to maximize profit and to maximize shareholder value. If you impose a tax on a corporation, corporation has a couple things that it can do. It could eat that tax and just say, ah, we'll take it on the chin. We like our price point. But most won't do that. In fact, almost none will do that. They will go ahead and they will raise prices or they will cut spending. They will cut employees to meet that target that target price, that target cost, that target return on investment. And so it ultimately ends up hurting the little people. 
have to buy their product. It doesn't actually do any funding of any program. Not only does it not fund Ukraine, it doesn't fund student debt cancellation. So this is one more war that we're left with as the walls close in that we're being distracted to fight about. And now, of course, we've got more shootings, more shootings to pull our attention away. And the reality is, is that nobody wants to talk about that. They want to talk about mental illness like it's the thing with gun violence. The reality is, is that the walls are closing in and people are feeling that pressure. People are feeling the despondency. People are feeling the desperation. And as people feel the desperation, other things start happening in different ways. It's kind of like squeezing something and eventually it's going to squirt out somewhere, right? You squeeze someone's head, eventually the eyes are going to bust out. Something's going to happen. And we see violence happening all over this country for so many reasons. Number one, we sat there and watched as a political party, the Democrats told everyone that they had to vote for Joe Biden when there was Bernie Sanders and others that were running, had to vote for Joe Biden, who could barely tie uh, words together, much less his own shoes. And we had to vote for him to stop Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump's a really bad dude. Donald Trump has got a lot of people. It's not really what he does so much as what the people that follow him do. And what has become normal in society. So now we've got a culture war to fight on top of an austerity war, on top of a hegemonic war, on top of this financial war, on top of an inflation battle, on top of a climate crisis, on top of a student debt bubble ready to burst, on top of an economy that has been propped up by finance capital and is not representative of the little people. And the little people are running out of money. They're running out of ability to survive in this environment. So you're looking now, you're looking and seeing ultimately that there is this capital order. And if you don't see that capital order, I don't know what to tell you. I'm really sorry about that. You need to read the book. But Clara's book, here's the problem. And what I loved about what she said last night, Clara's not an MMTer. She doesn't fully understand monetary operations. So a lot of the things she said last night and things that she said elsewhere haven't been exactly correct when it came to the, the monetary operations. She understands history and she understands class and she understands the economics of that. And this is what is so valuable is she painted out and explained the overarching war that we're in this, this three pronged attack that they use as a class war against labor, the austerity Trinity. Okay. Monetary austerity, fiscal austerity, and the power of layoffs. That right there is the Trinity of austerity. Okay. That's very important. But when you marry that up with how do we solve that? How do we bring these things together? Clara said last night that she was very interested in understanding and learning MMT, and she would welcome that conversation. And I think we've put enough pennies in the jar that hopefully she'll listen to what we have to say and that we can have a really strong ally on this converged austerity capital order MMT side, a leftist perspective, a leftist means of organizing around 
fiscal and monetary truth so that we can then in turn teach each other and then we can build a popular movement to actually take back power. I mean, let's be fair. This is all very, very hard to fathom coming true. It's all very, very hard to fathom coming true because first of all, everybody fancies themselves to be clever, fancies themselves to be, uh, you know, holding this unique knowledge. And so no one, no one will blend, no one will merge, no one will take the time and say, Hey, listen, you know, I understand socialism, but I admit, I don't understand federal finance. Boy, oh boy, wouldn't that be amazing if that was, and then the people on the other side say, Hey, listen, I understand monetary operations, but I really don't understand class struggle. Can you help me understand this? If we could marry that together, understanding of class analysis and the understanding of the monetary system, the walls that are closing in on us would not bother us as bad because we would have ideas and we would have solutions. We would have ideas and we would have solutions. Okay. We cannot get people that are not MMTers to listen to the MMT story so they understand monetary operations. And it looks like a lot of MMTers aren't interested in fully understanding the class dynamic. They're interested in their own things, they've got their own angle. But down below the oligarchs is the working class. There's the bourgeoisie, of course, but there is the working class. There's the proletariat. There we are. There we sit without power, but with childlike adherence to belief that we can vote our way to better. And it's like all I can envision is tiny Tim running up going, more, 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 please, more, please. Or like your dog that sits at your foot, hoping to guide you, drop some crumbs from your potato chips on the floor for them to eat. This is the dumbing down of our country and the dumbing down of everything. People don't have a clue, couldn't put two ideas together, couldn't string a sentence together about monetary operations, having ideas and thoughts about monetary operations. You know what I'm saying? Like, just think about that. They have no idea about monetary operations. They have no idea and understanding of how to operate a fiat currency, but they have more to say on it than people that do. And it's crazy. So how do we bring those factions together so that we can not only understand how the economics works, but understand how to structure society with a class analysis? and understand the tactics that we need to take as a revolutionary force to exact demands because we're not, folks, sorry, I'm just gonna cut to the skinny on this. I can't take it anymore. We're not voting our way there. We're not voting our way there. Please know this. I'm sure you've got local races in your community that are very important and those people are crazier than, you know, crazier than crazy. And if you don't support Whatever you've got to do in your backyard in that small town district and those local races, you're going to get screwed because that's really going to be where it really hurts. But you need to understand where the money starts. It starts at the federal level. It doesn't start at the state level. It doesn't start with businesses. And it doesn't start with banks. Banks provide credit. They don't provide new, fresh money. They provide bank credit. It's denominated in U.S. dollars because banks have charters from the federal government that allows them to do that, okay? We need a lot of banking reform. We need to make banking boring again. 
but people have all these hot takes, these hot takes that aren't grounded in reality and ultimately mislead so many more of our people. And they won't listen to any counter narrative whatsoever. And if they do, because they're so programmed to think that if you say anything about banks, that's not killed the banks or not, whatever, that you're a bank apologist. This is how stupid the debates have gotten. The idiocy is on steroids. Okay. We're watching privatization occur like mad. We're watching huge moneyed interests buying up farmlands, huge money interests buying up lots of properties, houses, you name it, apartments, condominiums, uh, open land. We're watching all of the world get bought up by the highest bidder. We are going to be left with no course other than a violent revolution at some point if we don't get with the program and start taking action now. Now. And this is, this is the problem. Who wants to step up? Most people think they got it figured out and they don't listen beyond that. And it's to their detriment for sure. But guess what? We need them. They need us. And if they're not willing to entertain that, they're not willing to do that, then we don't have a prayer in hell. Well, let's see here. Got a question here. Is it accurate to say hyperinflation and devaluation can't occur with a fiat currency? Let's start with hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is not about printing money though a lot of terrible people try to say it's about printing money. It has nothing to do with hyperinflation whatsoever. Hyperinflation comes typically from a series of things like, um, let's use uh, Weimar Republic. They had foreign debt denominated in French francs. They had massive corruption and they had the complete collapse of the production in the country based on strikes that were going in the industrial sector. Plus, coming off of World War I, they had never recovered because of the Treaty of Versailles. So they had hyperinflation. They tried to print money that didn't exist. But the fact was, if you've only got one loaf of bread on the shelf and there's a thousand people that want a loaf of bread, you could bring 50 baskets of dollars or Weimar Reichsmarks or whatever it is you want, and you're not going to be able to get bread because there's only one loaf. Okay, down in Zimbabwe, frequently hear about Zimbabwe. What happened in Zimbabwe? Mugabe took the farmlands from the colonizers, right? Way to go, Mugabe. However, the people that he gave the farmlands to not only were not expert farmers, but the previous folks, the colonizers, when they walked out of the place, they threw a match behind them and set the damn crops on fire. So they lost food sovereignty. It didn't matter how many Zimbabwean dollars you had, you could not buy food. So ultimately, this created hyperinflation. You notice none of this is about printing money. You notice that the people that say that tend to be Sig Heil, right wing people. So it's never about printing money, but that's the pollution that's gone into the discourse. Okay. Venezuela, very similar situation. They had their, uh, their, their uh, currency pegged to the US dollar, number one. They also had a single export, and that was crude oil, not refined oil, but crude oil. Crude oil that they were absolutely put over the barrel, if you will, by Saudi Arabia and OPEC, who dropped the bottom of the pricing of that and left them with a commodity that was overpriced, and it was the only thing they had. Add to that the U.S. playing games with dollars because they had a peg. In other words, they said, 
my uh, Venezuelan currency is going to be tied to a certain amount of U.S. dollars, okay? And when they made that, U.S. now has control over them because if they do any fluctuation with the dollar every year at all, they play any games, make it hard, make it soft, they can literally screw with the Venezuelan economy. And of course, between the CIA meddling, the playing games with the peg currency, and of course, the uh, games played with OPEC and dropping the bottom out of the pricing per barrel, Venezuela was left with nothing. This is what happened there as well. Notice once again, three hyperinflations, not a single one had anything to do with a fiat currency. These are the things that make you say, hmm, why do you think it's repeated so much when it's clearly not the case? And I can't answer that question other than the fact that there's these folks that sell Bitcoin that really want everybody to buy Bitcoin. And if they say this stuff, people buy Bitcoin. I don't know. I haven't know. I don't know. But no, fiat currencies can absolutely go into hyperinflation, but it's not about printing money. Printing money is something they try and do after the fact, but it's already happened. It's with extreme shortages, extreme production shortages. We have extremes of, uh, uh, here's another one. So the Confederacy in the United States, what did they do? They had a hyperinflation as well. But why do you suppose <laughs> the Confederates suffered hyperinflation? They had the breadbasket of the world down there and they had help from abroad. So what was causing, uh, you know, their problems, right? They could not impose a tax because they were fundamentally against taxation. LOLbertarians <laughs> screwed themselves really good there, right? And so ultimately, because they couldn't enforce a tax payable in Confederate dollars, what happened? They had hyperinflation. Had they been smart about fiat currency? Had they understood the power of tax? Had they used that as the pull that it needed to be? The South may have actually won the war then, as opposed to the way they've won it now by using the Powell memo and everything that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and up into the 2000s and now in the 2020s. They have been religiously devoted to getting every state house they could, to getting every judgeship they could, to getting the locals, to getting uh, complete gerrymandering of districts. This has been part of the Milton Friedman um, school of thought, the Chicago school of thought. They hated FDR. They hated everything about it. So what did they do? It created this counter narrative that has allowed them to simultaneously win the civil war here in the year 2023. Very, very sad. So is it accurate to say hyperinflation and devaluation can occur with a fiat currency? Hyperinflation, yes. Devaluation. Let's talk about devaluation real quick. So typically what they do is the markets. And um, I want to bring up something by Beardsley Rummel real quickly. You won't know who Beardsley Rummel is most likely, um, but I'm going to tell you about him momentarily. Um, hopefully I can pull it up quickly. Never happens quickly for me, unfortunately. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring this up here, share my screen. Okay, I'm going to try to. Something's blocking me. Hopefully I didn't stop streaming. Something clearly as let's see what's going on oh there we go we're back okay so i'm going to try and take this and share it 
this is a very important part of this uh, conversation here. Um, we'll go ahead and share this. This is um, an article written by Cory Doctorow back in 19. In 1943, the chairman of the New York Fed backed modern monetary theory. Taxes for revenue are obsolete. Okay. And what it says is modern monetary theory is the latest incarnation of chartalism, the economic theory that holds a government spending and federal jobs guaranteed doesn't create inflation so long as the spending is on things that private sector isn't buying. The factory can produce 10 widgets, but is only producing five. Blah, blah, blah. You all can read this. In fact, here, I'll put it in the chat momentarily. Um, please do read this. It's worth your time. Um, but let's get back to this. Um, he says that is government spending, which it pays for by simply minting as much money as it needs. Doesn't create inflation provided they're idle resources. In other words, it always comes down to resources, but in here, I want to find where Beardsley Rummel's quote, hopefully it's right in here. If not, I'll have to go to a different as evidence, consider taxes for revenue are obsolete. Okay. A speech given by New York Fed Chair Beardsley Rummel to the American Bar Association in 1943, I thought it was 1946, but it was 1943, explaining the lessons of war spending for tax policy. Here it goes. Rummel says taxes serve four purposes. As an instrument of fiscal policy to help stabilize the purchasing power of the dollar, to express public policy in the distribution of wealth and income, as is the case of a progressive income tax and estate taxes, to express public policy in subsidizing or penalizing various industries and economic groups, and four is to isolate, and this is interesting, isolate and assess directly the costs of certain national benefits, such as highways and social security. In other words, it's not that we're actually paying for it with them. It is just sort of like saying, we're going to take this away so it continues that cost association with this thing. Um, by extension, many feel that we're paying for it, but if they stopped taking taxes for Social Security, it would not in any way, shape, or form stop Social Security from being paid. Um, but anyway, he says some of spe Rummel's speech could be a direct quote from one of today's MMT advocates, like the dollars the government spends become purchasing power in the hands of the people who have received them. The dollars the government takes by taxes cannot be spent by the people, and therefore these dollars can no longer be used to acquire the things which are available for sale. Taxation is therefore an instrument of the first importance in the administration of any fiscal and monetary policy. Anyway, there's John Harvey in there. Um, I'm looking specifically for where Beardsley Rummel, and it, I'm just going to stop sharing this for now. Um, it's troubling to not be able to find it. Um, but suffice it to say, um, we are free from markets, okay? Markets themselves do not control the quote-unquote value of the dollar. That is a, a thing that is out there that people just assume. Reality is, is that it's free-floating. The dollar's value free-floats. In the end, the United States government accepts payment $1 for $1 in tax liability. That is the set, and that's the base case for the U.S. dollar is they spent by the government first into existence and then taxed out of existence by the same government. All right. And so when you're talking about devaluation, typically we're talking about it being tied to gold or tied to a commodity. And I like to, and this is probably oversimplifying it, but for the sake of this conversation, let me just say that if I have a pizza pie and I have six slices of that pie and I say, well, I want to print more 
slices. So I cut it into eight. Now, all of a sudden, the slices are smaller than they were. So we've, in effect, devalued the slice of pizza. Well, it's the same thing with the gold standard in theory. It's not real. It was never real. Uh, but it gave this kind of sort of an anchor that really, quite frankly, benefited the rich once again. Okay. But what it does is it says, hey, you, you can trade your dollar in for a 0.25 grams of, of gold or whatever the hell the relationship was. And if you print it against that amount of gold, you know, obviously you would be devaluing or debasing the currency, right? Well, we're not in a commodity market anymore. And even though it was a commodity money, even though we were dealing with quote unquote, a peg to gold, that does not change the fact that it's fiat. What it changes is the degree or the spectrum of sovereignty over that dollar. In other words, how much control do we have over it? Now, people often say, well, MMT only applies to the U.S. No, it applies to any, uh, any country. It applies to all fiat currency. The difference is, is that most people try to make it the theory of everything. What it ends up saying is, look, hey, you know, over this stretch of time, we have gotten energy sovereignty. We've got food sovereignty. We've got value-added production sovereignty. We've got energy grid. We've got infrastructure. We've got supply chains. We've got all this stuff. We don't need as much from the outside as the outside needs from us, okay? Well, the U.S. has tremendous production capability. However, the United States in its largesse leveraged its empire to extract cheap imports forever. So our ability to steal from the global south, our ability to uh, strong arm other countries into giving us what they want, that's falling apart. We saw that with Saudi Arabia and OPEC basically telling Biden to go fuck himself when he came there to tell them to not, uh, you know, cut production or to ease up production. But Biden screwed the pooch when uh, barrels of oil were at $60 a barrel. He didn't do that. He didn't replenish the uh, reserves of our oil here. Um, but in reality, we could have done so many other things. We could have chosen to move directly to renewables, and this would be largely game, set, match. We'd be out of it. We would be energy independent completely. But because we're not energy independent and because we end up having to use so much foreign oil just simply because it's the nature of the beast, we are very much impacted by the price of oil because everything is oil-based. Every single thing is oil-based, whether it be lubricants, whether it be paints, whether it be uh, fuel, whatever. Glass. I mean, petroleum products you use in plastics. It's used in everything. It's used to cook. I mean, folks, everything. It's in everything and everywhere. Our roadways, our asphalt, everything has petroleum products in it. So if the price of that goes up, it goes up on all the things that it touches. Everything is impacted by it. But that has nothing to do with, quote, unquote, a petrodollar, which is the going narrative, too. And it kind of plays into uh, the jam in 93's, uh, you know, point. And that, you know, if you go to Chuck E. Cheese, just because you get Chuck Bucks doesn't mean that the world is coming to an end. Okay. 
doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. It just means that they're not going to price it in that anymore. Now, here's where it gets challenging. When you have to buy something and you need to have reserves of that foreign denominated currency, you have to do something to get it. You either have to buy and sell something valuable to them, or you have to get it on the open market. This is where, quote unquote, the value of the purchasing power of the dollar plays out the most in terms of how we get imports, how we get exports. But in reality, we have productive capability in this country that is amazing. Um, and again, I'm kind of caught with this weird, twisted, I'm a socialist and at the same time, a revolutionary while simultaneously treading on the backs of understanding that most people aren't ready for a revolution. Most people aren't ready to stop trying to pretend that they can vote for a few more progressives and everything will be okay because of that. Is it really buffering bad? I'm really sorry, Johnny. Um, but I hope I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought there and I'm really bad. I shouldn't have looked at the chat, Johnny. I'll get you. <laughs> um, because petroleum is in everything because we didn't take care of our home base because it, it will raise prices and because we're not energy independent in that way, we are going to have to bring some stuff back home and we're going to have to worry about trying to uh, make, um, you know, society as a whole by American. I mean, when Joe Biden took office um, a couple of years back and he had his first state of the union, what did he do? Joe Biden sat there and told everybody that China was our biggest enemy. Reality was that China wasn't really the biggest enemy. Problem was is that China's not been playing military games. They've been busy building their one belt, one road initiative. They've been busy making relationships instead of bombing people. And as a result of that, China's kicking our ass. Okay. So Russia and China being natural allies, being right on each other's borders. They work together. The rest of the Asian countries work together. Uh, the global South, which has been predated upon by the United States, the IMF and the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, um, has rejected the U.S. Why? Because we were a heavy-handed empire that went after everyone using the Monroe Doctrine and all kinds of other uh, rationale, the Marshall Plan, you name it to ultimately create the grounds by which we ruled with an iron fist. And people have rejected that. Um, yeah, there's so much to talk about. And I, I, I got thrown off and I really regret that. Um, but anyway, bottom line is the walls are closing in and we've got to teach each other this stuff. We've got to build work groups. We've got to set up outside of uh, Facebook and work together in small groups to teach each other this stuff. You know, I'd like to believe our organization will play a part in that. Um, but you can see the big platforms ignore what we're saying, all of them, you know, um, you know, you've still got the folks running around talking about state by state healthcare. They got a documentary coming out in no time at all. It's going to become the rave of the land. And what's the problem with that? Well, guess what? States are not currency issuers. States are trapped in a race to the bottom. States, every time they try to raise taxes, et cetera, they watch corporations flee to Texas. They watch corporations flee to New Mexico, to 
um, Kansas to wherever there's low, so Florida, wherever there is no tax or low tax, they leave. And what happens to people with wealth? They leave too. They leave islands, deserts, if you will, of poor people, poor people that have no means of sustaining themselves. And you end up with a Flint, Michigan. You end up with a Detroit. You end up with this husk of a town where industry is left and left the people there to fend for themselves. Why we can't make this point to the state by staters is beyond me. I have talked to them in private Zooms, and it's all I can do not to find a way to release those conversations because we would talk and be like, okay, I hear you, but we're already doing this, so we're not changing. And that's that. And it's like, yeah, but you don't understand your ignorance of economics is going to harm all of us. The fact is there's only some 20 some states in the whole country that even have ballot amendment initiatives, ballot initiatives available to do stuff. The rest of it, they don't have that. So less than half the states could even get it. And you look what's happened with medical marijuana. Even there's some states that have it free. Most states don't still. There's still a huge number of states that don't have it. And it's not Medicare for all. And what happens once it fails in one state because you don't know how to handle your finances because you don't understand that money doesn't come from banks. It comes from the fucking government when it spends it into existence. The bank is just taking the instructions from the government and putting that money into an account and then spending it into the economy. But the money came into existence when Congress wrote a bill. It didn't come into existence just because somebody brought out a keystroke and said, okay, now it's official. Now we put it into an account. The money came into existence when it was created as law. See, law is what money is. Money was created by law. It's not just a social relationship. I wish it were just a social relationship. It's beyond that. It is a law that has real consequences and everything that it can do and is baked into it is a law. So think of money as a patent, as a law. It's way more than a means of exchange, medium of exchange. I've got like five minutes left before I got to get back to work. I hope you guys recognize that, yes, there's a lot of price, polycrisis, there's a huge amount of crises going on at once right now. But if we can focus on the engine that does all this, and that's the monetary system, focus on understanding the real way it works, not the cool kid at the fire pit, not the bar stool, right? Really figure out the right way. And I can tell you about it. And I've tried to tell you about it here as low level as I could without getting in the weeds. But suffice it to say, the government creates money when it spends, it taxes it out when it taxes, and we can do great things, but we have no control because we have no access to the halls of power. We must do something to make them hear us. We must do more than just tell people they're crazy for not voting for Biden. We must do more than just tell them that they're crazy for uh, thinking that you can do something outside of uh, politics. We got to stop telling people they're crazy for trying to organize outside of the duopoly. We got to stop telling people they're crazy and start embracing it and leaning into it because it's not going to change on its own. Anyway, please do me a favor. We are donating 50 copies of Clara Matei's book. Um, it's about $1,000. 
uh, to the first 50 people that sign up that, that need it, by the way, not just everybody, but if you need it, we'll give you a copy of Claire Matei's book when you sign up for our book club, should be in May. Um, we also secured a 40% discount on the print edition. So if you'd like to pick up a print edition, we got 40% off. That'll be in the uh, uh, registration. You'll be able to see the link of the code for all that. Um, it, it takes a lot of money to do these things, not just because, you know, the platforms and the stuff, but because we're giving the books away. Why? Because we think it's more important that people learn this stuff and then become a force multiplier. Okay. So every time you donate to our work, we're putting it into action. We're giving it back. So please consider becoming a monthly donor. Please consider becoming part of our, you know, our family, our, our organization. And uh, with that, for those people that are out here and that stuck with us the whole time, I want to thank you so much. If you have not already subscribed, please, please, please like and subscribe. It is the only way we get past the throttling that YouTube does to us. We've got almost 14,000 subscribers, and we're lucky if we get 60 or 70 viewers. And that's on the high end because of the games they play. So please subscribe, hit that button, turn on notifications, help share the word, help us get new people here. I don't think anybody else is talking about the things we're talking about. If they are, I'd love to work with them too. Um, I know there are a few out there that do different things, but there's enough differences between what they're saying and what I'm saying to merit some offline conversation because they're not one and the same. And I don't want to get in a position where I'm supporting something that's incorrect, all in the name of getting along. I want to do the right thing because we have an opportunity right now to get it right. So with that, I'm Steve Grumbine. I am the Rogue Scholar. I go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon Eastern time here. We also have a macro and cheese podcast that was released at 8 a.m. on Saturday mornings. And with that, I am out of here. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the real progress in action youtube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org